If you want to keep that passage open there before you, or whether that's on the paper or on your device, I think you might uh, find that helpful. What does it mean to be a Christian out in the world? Or, or maybe that's not so well put, maybe, maybe it's better, but uh, how do we be Christians out in the world? Well, it's important. Why would we want to ask that question? Well, this, this passage is here, and, 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 and it might be tempting in answering that question to sort of land up and come to a place of, well, what is it I need to do? What is it I need to be like? What do I need to add? And inevitably, because we might answer it that way, we might find that we just disappointed in ourselves, perhaps. Maybe there's another way to answer this question. How are we to be Christians out in the world? Maybe it's actually, in fact, more satisfactory. Because maybe the way to answer what does it mean to be a Christian in the world is to say this, to be Christ. And I think that's, above all else, if you hear nothing else, that's really what this passage is about. That to be a Christian in the world is to be Christ. You and me too, of course, are so prone to find uh, and to feel that it's about what I can do. And then if that's the case, then I feel the weight of my inadequacy, the weight of my inability. And I feel that sort of despair of that there's this inevitable failure just looming over me in everything I might attempt. You know, I don't know how your sort of last year, 18 months uh, have been like. You might be one of the, and praise God if you are, one of the very small sort of crowd who's, who's grown and found it a time in which you thrive and flourish. Praise God for that. But I suspect, maybe more like me, and for a number of us, I just straight up know that that's the case for us, that that's not so. That this actually has been a really hard slog. And it's not seemed easy to answer that question. What does it mean for me to be a Christian out in the world? There's an emotional scene in the movie Goodwill Hunting. And Robin Williams, the, uh, the counsellor, sort of turns to, to Matt Damon, the, uh, the, the young lad, and he has had a, a desperate sort of upbringing in life. And he turns to him and he just simply says and repeats, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And this passage might be Jesus repeating to you, if nothing else that you pick up from this morning, that I've got you. I have got you. I always have. And I always will. Turn with me here to those first five verses, and we see in this prayer of Jesus, this is why John, his friend, includes it here, is that it's not just sort of valuable from a sort of fly-on-the-wall reality TV thing. Oh, that is what Jesus was doing in the run-up to his death. But John sees it as this, this is really significant in terms of what Jesus is saying for us as we read it. And one of the things we find is that it, it works a bit like a creed. And, and I've used that word because the other three began with C. And, you know, I was just so, too disappointed to not use another word that we can see, but it's a creed, it's a truth that shapes all of the rest of it. If this truth in these first five verses of this passage really informs all of the rest of it. If you haven't got it now, I'll read it for you uh, anyway. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. 
since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all, all whom you've given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is so important. It shapes all the rest of it. And you wouldn't think so because it's not talking really so much about us at all, is it, really? It's, it's really quite intimate and personal, actually, between Jesus and his heavenly Father. But all of this really informs and shapes all of the rest of it. And here's the first thing it does, and we'll see a few of these briefly sort of throughout it, but it, it throws off a misconception about Christianity as a faith and, and Christianity as a way of life for us to follow Christ. And that is that it's all about you. It's not at all. If we're to take Jesus at his words here, which John wants us to, it's actually all about God. All of Jesus' life has been about glorifying his Father before those whom he's been put around. And now he says, in this last moment that's coming, and he's speaking of his crucifixion, his death uh, and resurrection for us, in this final moment, glorify me that I may glorify you even in that. But even in this moment, and, and, and what a sort of paradox, what a seeming contradiction, that in the moment of shameful death, I might glorify you. It's all been about God. And there's a misconception out in the world, isn't it? And so it leads us to actually ask the question, can it really be good that a worldview could come over to you and could say, it's not all about you? Because the world, by and large, wants to say that, wants to believe that. Can it really be good? Can it really be healthy? How can it not be seen as a harmful thing if we would say it's not all about you? Think about it. Isn't that the problem with the world? That everybody thinks it's all about them. They'll never say that, or not very often, because you know that that would be a sociopath. So it gets hidden a little bit. Who we act like it. Gordon Gecko in the film Wall Street talks about you know, greed being good. And his idea is that at the end of it all, it drives things forward. And of course, it's very crude and sort of shameful. You look at it and think, wow, what an awful way in which to view yourself and other people in the world. And yet, thinking that it's all about me, even not just sort of in terms of finances, is incredibly dangerous. And yet it happens. Why can't we prioritize us? Why can't it be a good thing to be about bettering myself? Why wouldn't that actually be a good thing, ultimately? Except we know that it's not when we want different and opposing things. What do we do when we are both making it all about me and all about my uh, prospering and getting better, but actually we now are clashing because we both think completely opposite things? It doesn't work, does it? But in fact, actually, it can even not work when we struggle and we fight and we look for the same things. Because maybe at best, one of us will leave the room with that thing. One of us will leave the room with that job. But maybe neither of us will. And definitely two of us don't. Do you see? It's actually incredibly harmful. If the story of the world, the story of life is to be all about you, because it means that we'll always be divided. There's something incredibly good about it not being all about you, but being all about God. 
It's the only thing, in fact, that actually helps us to jump off this disastrous spiral, isn't it? As if the priority is beyond me and not me. And here we see it. Here's Jesus who's given authority over all world to give eternal life to all being given me. And here's a second misconception is that Christianity is another form of religion where there's a bunch of moralistic sort of rules that if you can do this and not do that, then you can save those who can do that and keep up with it. But what does it say here? That eternal life is given to all those who are given to him. That it's actually not about what you can do for Jesus, but it's the fact that you've been given to him. And you don't even get a say in that. And that's wondrous. Because if it was down to you, you wouldn't choose him. How would it look? How wondrous it is that God would be gracious enough, good enough, that you give me the thing I wouldn't even want. That I wouldn't yet be in a place to ask for. And here's the reality of all of it. All these things we talk about, what does it look like to be a Christian in the world? Well, first and foremost, it's, it's being known by Jesus. Being known by him. To, be, to know this Jesus who has authority over all things. who can give eternal life. And that's not just about time. That, that's about quality. Right? Life. The revelation of Jesus' glory in the world through building his church as us his people is about restoring the glory he once had. Do you see that? Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's not about giving Jesus a glory he never had. It's about him getting the glory he had always had before. There's that creed that shapes the rest of it. But secondly, look at this conflict now. And here's why Jesus is, is making this prayer and making this request for us. We'll pick it up at verses 13 to 14 here. There's a conflict Despite this truth here that runs through all the rest of it, there's a conflict. And the conflict is that those who are loved and yet hated are accepted and yet rejected. He says, but now I'm coming to you. Here's the threat. Jesus has been with his people here. He's guarded. He's protected them. He's kept them. And now he's going back to be with the Father. And, and now he's not there physically, bodily to do that. I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. There's another misconception. is that Christianity is not offering you uh, something beyond joy. Uh, you know, as if joy is some really sort of uh, earthly, lower sort of pleasure. It's something almost to be a bit embarrassed about. So, you know, really you should be thinking on a higher kind of spiritual plane. It's not. Christianity is offering you a way in which to know true joy. Lasting joy. Joy that's guilt-free. Joy that doesn't pass after the moment. Joy that doesn't get suddenly ripped away and replaced with shame when you realise you look for it in the wrong place. When you realise your joy had a cost of somebody else's joy. Christianity offers you a way of knowing and experiencing true joy. It's deeply concerned with your happiness. So the journey of following Jesus should always be towards ever-increasing and truly fulfilling and everlasting joy. But look, there's a conflict, there's a cause of that conflict, and then there's a context to it in verse 14 of this. The world has hated them. There's the problem. There's that acceptance and love and care from Jesus, but the world has hated them. The world and the people of God are at odds. See, there's two important things to that. Firstly, the world is never neutral. 
never holds a neutral position. Not accepting Jesus' message, you're, you're not neutral. But secondly, note the direction of the hatred here. The world has hated them. And that's significant. You see that. You see that in the intolerance towards Christianity. You see it in the disgust and disrespect over there, shown to Jesus. And so then there's an important question, well, how do we respond to that? How do we respond in a world that can sometimes look like that? Without just sort of feeling sorry for that, isn't that bad that they you know, don't respect us? I mean, it is what it is. But how do we respond? Well, a wrong response would be to turn around in hatred. The hatred here is, is in one direction. It only ever should be. There's never anyone or any circumstance in which it's right for the church to respond in hatred back, no matter how we may be treated. And sometimes we won't be treated brilliantly. But it should always and only be going in one direction. The world has hated them. Secondly, you see the cause of this, though. Look, verse 14, because they're not of the world. The world has hated them because they're not of the world. The animosity is driven by this sort of violent identity politics. You are not like us. You are here, but you are not like us. We're hated at times because we're strangers and we're exiles. We live here, but we don't belong here. And then here's the context. Conflict, the world's hated them because, because they're not of the world. Still so again, verse 14, just as I am not of the world. This conflict is in keeping with the same conflict, the same rejection and misunderstanding that Jesus himself faced. So there's another important misconception. Christianity is not offering you a, a route to your own comfort. It's not offering you a path of least resistance. In fact, it's really explicit about offering you a hard road. Jesus was talking about the narrow road. A small gate, not the broad road. This is a hard journey. It's actually offering you not instant gratification, but long term. I mean, that's always historically as well the tension of, of the Jews throughout the Old Testament, right? Isn't it? You know, it's easy to look at them and think, oh man, how thick, how faithless were they? You know, how is it that they always come back to, you know, worshipping these golden calves and, like, poles and trees and things? Oh, you know, we are so much cleverer in 2021, and I like to think we wouldn't wind up there. You know what? All of those gods always have a story to them, and it's the story that's attached to them that they follow. And it's always really the same story. And it's the same story that out in the world we're still tempted to accept, and that is, follow this God, prioritise this thing, love this thing, sacrifice to this thing. Whatever it may be, career, relationship, on and on. Sacrifices, give everything to this, and you'll feel good now. Why wait? That's always the tension. Are you willing to wait for what you might not yet see? Or will you sell out to try to get what you think you can have now? It's not offering a path to short-term comfort. There's a conflict. But secondly, you see this cry from Jesus here. And let's look at this further at this prayer that he asked for. What is it he's asking for? But firstly, look at what he doesn't ask for in verses 15 to 19. He doesn't ask for power, for money, for influence, for success, however you sort of measure that. None of these are so important to Jesus here. He says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
Jesus is not to lift sort of his church's people out of this sort of nasty, vile world uh, and to be finally done with that and to just be with him. And, you know, who cares what happens to the rest of it? It's burning up anyway. No. He doesn't ask to take them out of the world, but he asks that they be kept from the evil one. And again, there would be a wrong response for the Christian out in the world, wouldn't it? It would be to simply just sort of push eject on the world. You just really just don't engage. You just try to have as minimal involvement as you can. You know, as little as I can sort of have involved with other people, then, you know, I'm safer. I'm just going to go to my hidey hole and I'm just going to camp out and wait for it to all blow over. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. Verse 16 here, we get this uh, repeat of verse 14 as well. We get it given to us twice. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. And yet, we're not to be lifted out of the world. We're in it, but we're not of it. So then how do we survive? Well, look at verse 17 through there. He says, sanctify them, set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. This is being set apart for God, not being separated from the world. That's, that's the important difference. And uh, the, the original word, uh, word there in the original language, it means like uh, setting aside something for the best use. So maybe the easiest way to think of that, I know I've shared it with you before, is that idea of like the best china. The best cutlery, best glasses to get, just kept, you know, for fancy guests. Or, you know, if you're a spinal tap sort of fan, it's the guitar that no one can even touch because it's just too good to even be touched. This is the best. I don't even play it. It's just there to look at. Set apart for good use. And there would be that wrong response again, that sort of separatism, that trying to sort of almost proactively live like Tom Hanks in Castaway, you know, talking to the volleyball, Wilson. Because, you know, my best hope actually is just to be cut off from everybody else sort of around me because, and here's the problem with it, the misconception is that everything that is bad, everything that might harm me, everything that might lead me away from God is outside of me, is external and material, not in me. So the idea is, well, if I can just cut myself off from that, if I can just get a sort of hazmat suit around that, then I'll, I'll be okay. Because I've kept myself from all the things that might harm me. That's the idea of the Pharisees, right? That, that's, that's the moral view. Is that if we can just keep ourselves clean and pure and all these things, then we'll be okay. God will be pleased with us. Except that Jesus teaches, Matthew 5, yeah, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. What you put in, observing all these food rules, who you eat with, where you eat, what you eat. That stuff that goes in and comes out. What comes out of you, out of your mouth, is what you really think. It's what you really love. It's what you really worship. I might want to just blame my environment, my upbringing, my society, the peer pressure around me, but it's dishonest. It's dishonest. It all comes from within me. That's my problem. You know, pushing eject on the world believes I can save myself. I can save myself by cutting myself off from the bad people around me. It's pretty arrogant. The problem with the world isn't just systems. It is sometimes, but it isn't just systems. It's me. It's you. 
So, becoming more godly, because you might have been wondering about this, could that really be an answer to actually engaging with the culture around us, to being a Christian out in the world, to the huge systemic uh, problems that we have of injustice in all of its different forms and abuse? How can being more godly be an answer? Well, it can, because if the problem is me, the problem is you, not just systems. And the only solution is for us to be transformed, isn't it? If only we were more holy, those systems wouldn't exist. There wouldn't be the environment in which that would seem acceptable or possible. It just wouldn't happen. We wouldn't have those abuses. And so, why doesn't he want us to leave the world? Well, he continues here, verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them. There's his reasoning. He said, ask not that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one in it. As you've sent me, I've sent them. You shouldn't push a jet because he's sent you here. He's brought you here. He's put you here in this time, in this place, in this space and season, around the people that you are around, from the place in which you are from, the people that you know, the personality that you have. Just as Jesus has been sent, so you have been sent too. So why was Jesus sent? Because that will inform why we're sent. Well, let's just quickly scan a few things here. Jesus himself uh, telling us why he was sent. Firstly, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, all those expectations and laws, but to fulfill them. Jesus comes to fulfill all the law that we have fallen short of, to be everything that we're not for us on our behalf. Same thing he says Matthew 10, I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword. And his point is to say that I haven't come to be afraid of or try to avoid people conflicting and diverging on who they say that I am. Me coming, it's going to cause people to disagree. That's just part of the game. Not everybody's going to agree. He says, Matthew 20, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for men. He comes to serve and to give himself up for us, to set us free from all that would hold us down. Luke 5, he tells us, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's not come for those who, who think they've got it all together, but those who know they've made a mess and have screwed up for the thousandth time. He's come for those people out on the fringes, out on the margins, those who know that they have need, who know that they're broken. He says, I've come in my Father's name. He's come in his Father's authority and name with his words and doing his works. But John 10 tells us, I came that they might have life. And have it abundantly. He's come to bring people greater life, not less life. Finally, John 12, he says, I've come into the world as light to show that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. He's come so that he can bring us out of our darkness and our lostness and our despair and our confusion, that we might know him and that we might find life in its fullness. So just as Jesus is sent, so we are sent into the world too. And I hope that you see that this is a really high calling and asks us to engage really deeply with the world we live in. It calls for love, for sacrifice, for humility, for patience, for grace, for listening and for being present with people. And it addresses another misconception, doesn't it? That mission is just for a sort of professional class of people who have some letters after their name that supposedly say they sort of know everything. It's not. We're all missionaries with who God's put us around and where God has put us. 
for their sake, he says, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Sets himself apart so that we might be set apart. If you have to keep this one commentator, uh, Rudolf Bultmann puts it like this, that it's to take out of the sphere of the profane and place in the sphere of the divine. That's what it means to be set apart for him, for good use. And again, it addresses yet another misconception. What does it mean to be a Christian out in the world? What does it mean to be the church out in the world? Well, we're certainly not the world police. It's not our job to police society. It's our job to be missionaries out within the world. It's in that creed that drives all of this. We've seen that conflict that we're accepted, yet rejected, loved, and yet hated. We see that cry, Christ's prayer for his church. And then lastly, we see this calling. We see Christ's purposes for the church. And then we also see what we'll do with the world as well. Look at these purposes here. We get four in verses 20 to 26. Four purposes for the church, for his people. Firstly, it's growth. What he prays here, also for those who will believe in me through their word. You see, uh, those who might call together, the disciples will be sent out, will go out and will share the message, will share my word, and those will come to faith through those words. And I'm also praying for those who will then come to faith as a result of the disciples going out and sharing this, so that there's this expectation that others will join too, that the church is to grow. And again, not for its own sake, not to amass power and influence and significance out of the world, no, no, but so that more people might hear about Jesus and more people might enter the blessings of knowing Jesus. So it would be entirely wrong to cut off from that world we're sent out into. There's that expectation of growth. But secondly, look, you see this oneness with each other. He asks here, verse 21, that they may all be one. Verse 22, that they be one even as we are one. Christ brings his church together. There's purposes amongst his people, that a diverse people who often in the world might be divided by many things are brought together under Christ where those things don't matter anymore. Paul puts it in another place, Galatians 3, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, but you're all one in Christ. Did you notice that the big categories that he puts it, that there's no one separated by ethnicity, whether Jew or Greek. There's no one separated by your class, whether slave or free. There's no separation by your gender, by being male or female. You're all one in Christ. All things that might in the world divide us, and oftentimes sadly still do, are actually subsumed under being one in Christ together. That the most important identity you'll ever have is being his. We're brought together, but secondly, we're brought together with God. We're one with God. Verse 21, look here, that they also may be in us. And verse 24, that they may be with me. He brings us together with him. Christ brings his presence to us. It was promised at his birth. And the angels declare that he'll be Emmanuel, God with us. And here is Jesus coming good on that promise that we'll be together with God, that we'll be knitted together with him as well as with each other. And then last thing here, last purpose is love. Verse 26, that the love with which you love me may be in them. Christ expresses his love to us through being part of his people. See, the church is God's opportunity to especially show his love, its experience within himself, within the Trinity. And there's an important misconception to address that 
Christ doesn't call people to him because he's needy. He doesn't need your love. He doesn't need anything. How can we worship a God who would need that from you? He doesn't need it. Desires it, but he doesn't need it. God already has within himself, within the Godhead, within the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, perfect love. Us following Jesus is a chance for us to be welcomed in to that perfect love. It's always about us receiving. It's always about him giving to us. God doesn't need your love from you. But God wants to give his love to you. And then lastly, we see Christ's purposes for the world as well. What about the rest of the world? Because we've heard a lot here about Jesus' people, about God's people. And that's good. That's great for us who are part of that. But obviously, you might just be thinking, well, you know, kind of, what about the rest of the world? What about those who are not yet part of things? You know, one of the sad things, and, you know, David was, was praying for it earlier as well, wasn't he? But, you know, we're praying for him and lamenting about it, is that, you know, the whole situation in Afghanistan is really not as simple as just sort of they're saying very glibly, oh, well, you know, the Taliban have retaken back that land that was once theirs and just sort of retaking it. We all know that there's a whole depth of sorrow and grief and pain to it far beyond that. It might be great for them. It might be great for their supporters. But what about everybody else? What about those even who are known as opponents? What of them? And of course, the tragedy is, we know. You don't have to ask that question. We know what will happen. It doesn't matter what they say on TV. We know. They'll be systematically suppressed, abused, imprisoned, and killed. So what of those who are not yet in with God? What will he be like? How will he respond with those who, who choose not to follow him? Well, you see two approaches, as we close up here, that God makes towards the world, i.e. those who are not yet part of the people of God. Look again, verse 21. He asks here, Jesus, so that the world may believe you sent me. He'll say a similar thing again in verse 23. He desires, God desires and works so that the world would believe him. All that he's doing with and within the church is in part so that the world would believe. So that if even through jealousy, if you know, that looks so good. I've got to get in on that. How can I experience that kind of love? All that God is doing is always in part focused on desiring for the world to come to know him and to share in it. It's really important, isn't it? Good verse 23 here. So the world may know you, may know that you at least love them, even as you have loved me. Was to say. This isn't just an intellectual thing, by the way. This is now speaking of a an experience, something that you know and feel and enter into. Christ does all that he does so that the world may know that he loves them, even if they may reject him. It's been put earlier on in John's Gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish and have eternal life. For God didn't send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
That's always his aim, the purpose of fairness. And so what will he do about it? Well, look at verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Jesus works to make his name known, and will continue to do so. For most of us here, that's exactly what we've experienced. Bruce Mill, that commentator writing about this, says, uh, Our work and our witness in all their variety are already, in advance, uh, gathered up, healed, renewed, and perfected by being gathered into Jesus' holy response to the call of the Father. Thus, the sin in our service, its unworthiness, its unbelief, its many disobediences, all its sordid self-promotion, its lethargy, cowardice, and worldly compromise, is overcome. Mission becomes celebration, an act in which the sacrifice and exaltation of Jesus are proclaimed to the world before he comes, who perfects our mission even as he makes all things new. You see what he said to try to put it in a sentence, he's saying that even your half-hearted, unimpressive attempts at mission that you feel bad for and you think, I should have said that better, I could have done that differently, I could have said more, I could have said less, Jesus prefers. Because actually, we think that it's all about us going to work. We think that we're adding so much to the Father's work as he calls us out to work with him, as we pack our little lunchbox and we go out with him on his work. We think that we're adding so much to it that, well, you know, my dad couldn't get by if I wasn't helping him out today. And actually we find that we were there more for our benefit. Did we add anything to what he was doing? Probably not. The Father was doing his work. Jesus will make his name known and will continue to do so. And I dare say that for most of you, that's been your experience. Was it a process of really you actually throughout and sat there and thought, I'm going to weigh up these sort of intellectual pros and cons of all these different sort of theoretical things? I bet for most of you, and it certainly was for me, that you had an encounter with God that you couldn't write off. Whether you wanted that or not, that's my experience. Encountered the love of God in that moment. And he continues to make his name known. When we think of engaging in culture, we may feel a bit hopeless. What's the point? What's the chances of this working? And that's good in a way, because I think that's a case of actually being, you know, realising at a certain point your limitations, being aware of it. Because if you think it's a case of just, well, you know, if the church was just cool enough, it was just slick enough, we were just sort of clever enough and nice enough, that, you know, that would be enough. I think it's a bit deluded. And maybe you've forgotten what it felt like to not yet believe Jesus. And forgotten how deep that scepticism can be. That things like that probably aren't enough to sway you. Probably shows you aren't really listening to the world who really aren't that impressed. Not going to be one over that. But the reason it's not hopeless, you see in verse 26 here, that he shows up. And that proves, verses 1 to 5 is true, it proves that he is that God, he is who he says he is. But he shows up. We live in the world, but distinct to it. The world might be one, but we see God revealing himself. I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, sing another couple of songs together, hopefully, if, uh, if the PowerPoint uh, works this time. Uh, I will enjoy that uh, freedom to do so. Father God, I thank you that 
where you put us out in a world where sometimes we know that feeling of, of kind of not being accepted in certain places and you know people um, you know having different feelings and responses towards us sometimes uh, not so positive uh, sometimes that can be hard and sometimes that can be demoralizing Lord, our, our greatest our deepest desire Lord, is just to, to be your people and to, to love the world and uh, to speak of you to them to um, share your love with them and that they might come to know and come to sharing those blessings Father, we thank you that ultimately in all of this, it's not about us fighting desperately hard to be better, to be more, but actually it's about remembering that you have us. You have us. You always have. And you always will. And Lord, I pray for those who might not know you yet. And they might have a variety of different feelings and reasons for that and different experiences with church. Uh, you know, different questions and so, so Vietnam had to reconcile. But Lord, I pray that they may come to know your love for them, come to know that they too are held by you, that you always have, and that you always will, because you are such a kind and gracious and loving God. We thank you for putting us here in your world, and we pray for your help, your protection, and your guidance as we seek to be your people in the world, to be in the world, but to be distinct, to be living holy, living lives marked by love and by grace that you have given to us. So Holy Spirit, we ask now, I ask now for your help, for you to work within us to do what my words alone will never ever be able to conjure up within us, that the Lord your Spirit would shape us and mold us and break us and remake us. In your image, I pray. Amen.